out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim. That's just what I wanted. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. I've been delving through the archives of uh, various interviews I've done over the last year. And this is one that I came across with Woody Woodmansey, the drummer with David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars. Um, This is the interview, unedited, but full of quality chat. And uh, this is the first part, and the only part, because I'm just going to play the whole thing, um, where I've been mentioning and talking about the book that he'd written, and also about that famous night when David Bowie's, on David Bowie's birthday, when the uh, band Holy Holy phoned him up. It was a very touching moment. Anyway, it's an emotional interview. Um, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, this is me talking about that very moment. And then Woody's going to reply. Take it away. It's an amazing read. And, and, you know, I've been doing sort of interviews with people from bands for sort of a long time now. And um, there's some really touching bits in there. But the one that really was quite chilling was that night of his birthday where you were playing, I think it was in America, wasn't it? And Tony Visconti sort of decided to phone him. And I thought that was kind of quite an amazing bit of timing. Can you remember much about that evening? Uh, Yeah, it was was our first gig as Holy Holy in uh, in New York. And um, when we got to the gig, um, a lot of the staff were kind of lined up and the security and all that. And they'd obviously been discussing the looking forward to the concert and they said we've heard a rumor that that david's going to come down and sing with you and uh we said well you know that'd be great if he does but we haven't heard that rumor you know and we we would know about it but we we didn't want to put the dampers on it said well let's see what happens you know (laughs) and then we got we got and it was it wasn't that far the gig was not that far from his place and um I guess that prompted Tony because we thought, well, he might he might come down. You never know. Um, and then halfway through the concert, um, and we we actually hadn't realised that it was his birthday until we got there. Right. It was weird. We didn't. We, it wasn't like a planned thing to play New York on his birthday. <laughs> so Tony just turned around to me and said, "I'm going to ring David." And I went, "Yeah, go on." Then. <laughs> this is in the middle of the concert, you know. So he, he rang him and he answered, and uh, and we kind of got in got in on the conversation and and he said uh, we said we're play, we're just playing um, not far from your place and he was like oh wow thanks for ringing um, and we got we then said we want to we want to wish you a happy birthday basically so we got the the audience to to sing Happy Birthday, and we played a, a really bad karaoke version of Happy Birthday, which we probably hadn't played since working, you know, doing working men's clubs in the in the 60s. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? It's not something you get to do in a concert. Um, and he said, oh, that was really nice. Uh, th- say thank you for that. So we did that. And then he said, ask them what they think to Blackstar, because it, it came out that day. Yes. And they all went kind of wild and whatever. And he said, um, he said, you know, thank you. That's nice to hear. Thanks for ringing. He said, uh, good luck with the tour, and I'll catch you later. So for us, it was a, it was a real unexpected high at the beginning of the tour. You know, yes, it's not something we ever thought would happen, really. I know. Um, 
And then we, then we, you know, we were in Toronto a day and a half later. And my phone was buzzing around the table basically all night. I mean, well, for about three hours. And I was like, we must be doing well, you know, we're getting so many calls. Um, and then my son got through to me, who was in England, and he said, I've just seen it on the news, David's died. And I was like, holy shit, what? You know, I'd, five o'clock in the morning, you don't compute really properly, you know, you've just woken up. And um, and then I kind of checked out the other calls, and it was all said, sorry for your loss. And, uh, and we, so, you know, got everybody up, and Tony was kind of collapsed with the news. Um, somebody had got through to him as well. So we said, okay, let's all get up uh, about half past five um, and decide what we're going to do, because is it, is it disrespectful to carry on, you know? We had about another 12 dates to do. And Tony said, well, look, he said, um, you know, David worked right to the end, and he was, he was, I, he, Tony said, I didn't know it was that, he was that ill, that it was that serious. Um, but he did, you know, work under incredible pressure doing the musical and the album. And, um, you know, he would take, he would do a bit of work and then sleep and then more work and then sleep, and he just kept going. And I said, well, that's funny because, you know, it reminded me that on our tours during the Ziggy period, he, he wasn't eating well. Um, and he was kind of hyper in the creative mode most of the time. So he'd lost a lot of weight and he, so he wasn't particularly healthy. So sometimes he would, he would have like pneumonia just about, you know, and he said, God, we're going to, we're going to have to pull tonight's show. He can't possibly go on like that. So we'd say, look, we should pull tonight. And he would go, no, you know, we've said we're playing, we're playing nothing. The show must go on. And I thought, well, that, that was his attitude. No matter what happens, you carry on, you know? Yes. And there, and there, and there were so many, uh, emails and things on Facebook and there's about 20,000 people from the different gigs we were going to be doing saying you've got to carry on we have to see we have to experience the music at this particular time you know and it was it was very different after that you know doing the concerts yeah the first the first kind of 10 rows were you know Kleenex tissues and people hugging each other and crying and and it was like, okay, this is going to be a really bad night, you know. <laughs> so, we, you know, Tony went out and just said, look, you know, the best way through this is music. Let's just, and then it still wasn't happening. So I just lost my cool and shouted at him, this is not a fucking funeral. <laughs> you know, this, this is a celebration of his life and his music. And so, you, you know, he would want you to have a good night. So like, Let's make it a good night. Mm. And we ended up doing that. It took that every night to kind of get the atmosphere into the right place, you know. Yes. And, and afterwards, we, every night we met about f at least 300 people lined up to just, you know, say thank you. And, um, and the stories we heard from, I guess, from their lives, you know, were amazing. You yes. know, how the what the music had done for them. And it was like... And I, I ended up thinking, wow, not even David knew this. 
Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Because he was, he was kind of, we'd always been really disconnected from audiences. We'd do the, we'd do the show and then there was a connection. But then you'd shoot off after a gig to the hotel or the next gig. And you never really got to meet many fans. I mean, some some would find out where you were staying, and so you might meet half a dozen. But to meet that many a night that had similar stories and and what it actually meant, I'm sure he never knew that. You know, yes. you know, he knew he knew it was popular, obviously. But but what it, you know, you kind of finished a night thinking they've lost a family member. It's not just a an artist that they liked and admired and liked his music. It's like they lost a brother or a sister, you know. Yes, it's Which true. was not something that I thought of, you know. He was really a part of their, their existence, you yes. know. Yes. Well, it's interesting because, um, yes, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, to, to be honest, I mean, the first single I got on the first album was, you know, David Bowie, and it was that kind of seeing it on top of the pops. This was Space Oddity, you know, around 74. So I was, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, your first love is going to be with you all through your life, you know, through the highs and lows, and that includes the all those tricky albums he did. So I never yeah, realised yeah. until he died, you know, like the whole world felt like the, the globe was kind of literally sort of like going, I can't believe David. It's no longer with us, you know, and it was a bit like, yeah. and I and I hadn't realised that either. It's like, I, I didn't know you were all David Bowie fans in to, to this degree, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of a, an odd one, really. And to process it as well, and all the time and with the album and then the birthday, then hearing about that, and it was like, oh my God, this has all just got even more intense, you know, it was quite interesting. So yeah. as, as a musician, who'd, who obviously had another huge insight, because, you you know, because David was always interested, because in the 60s he was, you know, throwing ideas up and they weren't quite working, and then suddenly he got the idea and you were there. When So you had that kind of period of him going from kind of, no, not quite going to work on that one day, but don't give your day job up to suddenly, yes, we've hit the jackpot, you know. <laughs> so you must yeah. have had that yeah. kind of experience of like, you know, chaps in the van, you know, sleeping on mattresses, you know, just kind of coping with life to suddenly people want to, you know, see us and touch us and, you know, and talk to us just because we're we're guys on a stage. So that 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 process must have been quite fascinating. It was. It was, you know, you, you do have an idea, or at least your own imagination, you have an idea of what it's like to to be successful and what it's like up there and what you'd be doing. So you've got, a, you've got a concept before you set off with that idea in mind, but it, it was, I guess it never really pans out in the way you thought it. So, you know, some things are a lot harder and some things are more incredible when you get there than you ever imagined. So it was, it, I mean, it was interesting going from, you know, listening to the earlier attempts it had at success. And as a musician, viewing it and going, well, I can see he was he was trying to be a bit of that and a bit of that, and he wasn't quite sure whether he was a, a pop singer or a, he should be doing musicals or whether he should be an actor or a mime artist or a... Um, it was quite confused, yes. and 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 there was there was a there was a basic folk singer type thing um, as a thread through it all. And when we we kind of joined him as a as a unit, he um, 
that was the furthest thing from our um, track as musicians. We never, never really listened to folk music because there was no loud guitar on folk music and no heavy drums, you know, <laughs> so so why would you listen? You know, an occasional song like a Simon and Garfunkel thing might impinge from a, a song point of view, and you went, oh, that's a good song, you know. But um, so when, he, he, when I first met him and he played me a lot of his old stuff, I say old, it would be only a year before or two years before, it was folk music, and it, it didn't really impress me that much, you know. Yes. And, um, you know, I was going through, you know, I'd just given up, I guess, a good job in Yorkshire that I'd been offered. So this was a, this was a bit of a, recon a reconnaissance thing. I mean, I'd made the decision to go for it as a musician in London with Mick Ronson and David and Tony Visconti. Um, but I still had my kind of checklist that I had to run through my head, you know, when I met him, is he, is he intelligent, you know, <laughs> or is he thick? He might have been thicker. You know, all I'd ever seen was David Bowie on a little flyer in Yorkshire. Yes. Um, with the curly hair from the Space Oddity days. Um, and it didn't, it was not even a, a good print of his face, you know, so <laughs> that's all I knew about David Bowie. I knew he'd had a single out, which I think people thought was kind of a gimmicky jumping on the space thing, and, you know. Yes, definitely. It, it didn't cause much of a, um, not, not in the progressive rock circles that we were in anyway, it didn't really do much. So I was like, okay, is he intelligent? Can he actually sing? Um, you know, has he got ideas? Has he got any fashion sense? Would he be a good front man? Can he write songs? You know, um, you know, we'd learnt enough as you know different bands we've been in, but that songs were the thing. Um, if you didn't have somebody who could write, it didn't matter how good you were as musicians. Really, you were not going to do anything. You know. Um, and I, you know, so I didn't have all those questions answered. And and then he he actually played a folk song to me. He played Wild Eyed Boy from Free Cloud on his 12 string. And just me and him in the room. And at the end of it, I was like, shit. <laughs> you know, shit, he, could, he can write. Yes. It, just by, that, by the end of that song, I had my... Um, my idea... Of what the song was about and what it did, what it did to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously different for anybody that's listening to it, but <clears throat> I always thought that was David's. Uh, that's kind of what put him, or one of the things that put him above the rest, that he did have that ability to write a song that pointed you in a direction. It gave you an idea, an outline of a story, whatever it was about, and you filled in the the people and what they looked like and what it meant and what that was about. You you had your own story. Yes. It didn't say, you know, Johnny met you in the in the coffee bar and uh, he held your hand and you went. It, it didn't lay it all out for you. And a lot of the times it was a bit hard to find a what is this about. Because yeah. of because of the way he wrote, um, 
but you could still, he still had that ability to, to make you use your imagination. And I think that was a big part of his success, really. He was, yes. he was one of the best at that, you know. Um, well, it's interesting because, cause, I mean, because um, David and also the, my, another person who was his age was Lemmy from Motorhead. And I mean, yeah. the Pazali, I mean, whenever they were asked what their musical influences were, they both said the same person, Little Richard. And then they'd mention Elvis and all the others. But it was kind of interesting. So you were a bit younger than those guys. So probably. Yeah. So, so were you, was your musical influences slightly different to the Little Richard Elvis kind of. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I missed. I kind of missed that rock and roll. Um, what I call rock, you know, when it was first rock and roll. You know, it was the early Elvis and Little Richard, and I I, I joined it on kind of Chuck Berry, um, Howlin' Wolf, the blues side. Um, uh, the Stones were kind of the closest. Um, as far as commercialism, anyway, yeah, because um, they they'd taken their things from the blues. So, so Mick and I had both come up through that side of music. Really, we went, you know. I mean, I like things like the Small Faces, uh, Traffic, and things like that. Yeah. I've kind of observed the, but mainly just the really the singles and things like that. It, they were more um, poppy. I mean, good pop, you know, yes. good British pop. But um, we were more on the progressive side of things, you know. Yeah. We kind of went to, you know, the Jeff Beck group, um, you know, early Led Zeppelin, Hendrix, uh, Cream. We, we'd come up through that side of things. Because it was always interesting, because whenever, you know, David was talking about his kind of bands and his guitarists, he always said he was looking for his uh, Jeff Beck, and obviously Mick Ronson yeah. was, the, was the person. And, and as you said, you know, you, you weren't quite so enamoured, probably because of age, you know, with the little Richard and Elvis, which obviously, and I remember John Peel used to mention, you know, when you sort of, you didn't, you know, that was like, you'd heard nothing like that before, and suddenly you heard this sound, which was like completely new, so... We, you know, younger people, myself included, I suppose, even though I'm in my mid-50s now, could never, could imagine what that could be like. But obviously, when you started making that first album in, in 1970, The Man Who Sold the World, obviously there were kind of a, you know, there had all been, there'd also been that whole sort of 60s counterculture that had developed yeah. with the Beatles, the Stones, Hendrix, the Doors. So, so by the time the 70s came along, which was a bit strange, because at the time, I think everyone felt like, the party had been over, but obviously you had just kind of entered the party, so to speak, you know, and said, hey, we're here now, we can take the baton. So obviously that must have been kind of an interesting transformation. You know, Woodstock was coming to an end, then Hendrix, Joplin and Morrison all died, and you were thinking, did did any of that kind of, was that filtering through into the, the, the musical sort of landscape at the time? Yeah, it was really. I mean, I, mean, I guess there was the idea... Um, we were we were kind of weekend hippies, do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> while, while we were in uh, our kind of semi-pro um, stages in different bands, like a band called The Rats, you know, we would get into the hippie thing on a weekend sometimes, you know, and then then it had gone for the rest of the week until you had the next gig. And the, the kind of idea was like, well, that thing's over, the thing that, everybody thought was going to change the world, 
make it a, a peaceful, um, loving place got got perverted basically. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. it got and then the you know the whole drug culture and the psychedelic thing, it it kind of tipped the boat over yes. and made it well. That's not going to happen. So, but the music. Um, you know, the music was what we'd grown up with and what we liked, and we still liked the hard-head, hard-edged, um, kind of bluesy... Hard to describe it. It's it's like, um, you know, fr- from playing covers of other people's songs, you, you, do get a, you do get a feel from your instrument of when a song is arranged well mm. or what to play and what not to play and uh, what's successful about that song. So then, you know, when David then would come with a song, you you had that experience to draw on. And, we, and so we were still in that kind of a progressive rock mode when we did Man I Saw the World, you know. Yes. And it and it kind of changed into well a little bit of this is our Sergeant Pe- Sergeant Pepper, you know. Yeah. E- everything but the kitchen sink. In fact, there probably was a kitchen sink on there as well. You know? <laughs> it was just um, a whole creative. Because um, David hadn't really set out a a direction for that album, um, and he'd just got married to to Angie at the time, and he was kind of more interested in canoodling, really, with Andrew <laughs> <laughs> than, than writing and, and arranging or doing any of that stuff, you know. Yes. Tony would have to pull him out of the foyer of the studio and say, OK, we've got this ready, you need to come and write this song, you know. Because <laughs> he, he, just, he just brought us chords. He yes. Just, he said, oh, this is a verse, I think, and this is a middle bit, and this... We've got to fit this in somewhere, and then this is the chorus bit, and I'm not sure how it should go out. So we would just, we'd set up like a band in the studio, as though we were playing live to in a gig, yeah. and we just we just jammed basically until all the pieces fitted together. And Tony was re- really good at saying, "Oh, what we played there." We can repeat that. That is a really good bit. Let's repeat that. Go back to that bit, and by the you know, an hour of messing about, we would um, end up with a a basic backing track. Um, and a lot of the times we, di- we didn't even know what the song was about. <laughs> you know, and, and then David would come in and he'd go, oh, okay, and he'd go out for 10 minutes, come back in and he'd written it. <laughs> it was like, holy shit, is that a way? Tony was going crazy because he said, you how can I work like this? You know? <laughs> yes. I'm so used to the the principal artist being totally involved, and I can't get him in the studio, you know. Yeah. But then when he came in, he did. He, he kind of he delivered, you know. Um, well, yes. I mean, things like Superman. It was. He said, you know, that, yeah, this is called the Cyclops, you know. So we just had this big giant with one eye. <laughs> that that was the concept. So musically, we, we kind of had a direction for it, you know. Yes. Uh, and then it turned, oh, no, it's not the Cyclops. I've rewritten it. It's called the Superman, you know. Um, but it was, a, it was a great album for being the first album that we ever did. The first time we'd been in a, in a major studio. We'd been in little demo studios. 
Um, so it was it was the first time Mick really heard his guitar and what he sounded like. And same for me on drums. Um, you could actually hear yourself. Wow, is that what I sound like? You know, okay, yes. got to change that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it was a, it was a good learning curve, and and it also taught us kind of um, what to do and what not to do really quickly. Um, we started to learn more about production and arranging as as players. Yes. You know, it, it wasn't just you're going out live to do this song and you can play what you want. It wasn't like that. It was, okay, start to think about it as a song. Um, so that when we got to Hunky Dory, um, you know, we then started listening to... David had brought uh, Velvet Underground back from, from America He'd done a promotional trip on the Man of Silver World and he'd met Lou and Andy Warhol and that whole... So he'd brought some of that stuff and it, we brought, he brought an Iggy film from Detroit. Right. That, that was probably the first film of Iggy in the country. And we sat and watched that and that was like, wow, okay, that's, uh, that's different. There's nothing like that around, you know? Yes. And it's like... <clears throat> but, it did, but it did... It did um, you know, we liked the decadence that, that Velvet Underground created, but we, as musicians, as a band, we didn't like the musicianship. It, it was for us, it was crap. You know, which <laughs> 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 is not very nice to say, but it wasn't. It musically, it wasn't anything to write home about. But we did like the the effect that it seemed to create. Mm. So we we always looked at things like Queen Bitch or whatever it was. Okay, but we need to do it in an English way. There's a way to do that same decadence and um, create those uh, apocalyptic feelings without just trashing a guitar or trashing a drum kit or playing it like you don't know how to play it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like, how do you do this musically? Because we, you know... Yes. Uh, you know, and then when when and then David's way of writing changed. He would come with a completed song. It was like this is the verse, this is the intro, this is the chorus, this is the middle eight bit, this is the next verse. It was all all the lyrics were written, the melodies and everything. You know, um, and and we'd started listening to um, Neil Young and uh, some of the American. Uh, artists that were kind of making it at the time it was and it was more streamlined and we started to think you know we were we were still i guess uh learning as musicians you know after being in the studio and you've thrown all your all your favorite drum licks onto those songs and same with mick it was like okay now we've we've got to make our own stamp really mm. um and we started to especially with David's songs, it was, you had to find a way to put the song across with the right um, intention or the right message. Um, keep it, keep it rocking, but not bury his vocal, basically. Yes. You know what I mean? It was, it was, so it was quite tricky getting into that way of thinking. Um, but it, it, it 
you know, it was very much like that. It was like, okay, we want a modern sound. So a lot of the stuff before has been um, there was a lot of busy stuff on the market, a yes. lot of overproduced stuff, and a lot of a lot of playing for the sake of playing. And we decided that, I guess, futuristically, it would be more economical. It would hint at what's been before without copying and and just streamline everything. You, so we we all kind of played with a. Um, Exactly. What does this song need? Do you know what I mean? Yes, without Find, being clever. Where does it? Yeah, where, where does it come alive? Where does the message and David's vocal really come across? How how do we do that without burying it and without being too busy or clever or whatever? And yeah. so, uh, and then when we got in the studio, we we realised that was probably a good way to approach it because we didn't get much time. Um, we never went to like, I don't think we ever went to f playing a song four times. It was like second take mainly. Um, sometimes like Starman and Gene Genie, they were first takes. We'd never played it before, you know. So it it was, you were always on the edge. So the fact that we'd taken a, a simplistic streamlined, just give it what it actually needs was made it a little bit easier to pull it off in two or three takes, you know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we, you know, when we, when we first started operating like that in Trident Studios, you know, we'd, David would have written one, say, on a Friday, and he'd say, oh, would he come in and have a listen, you know? And he'd play a song, and I'd go, oh, that's great, I like that. And he'd go, we'll do this on Monday in the studio. And I'd go, okay. Um... And you get in the studio, you'd got all your sounds together, ready to record, and you'd, and we'd go, so we're doing, and I can't remember what name, but are we doing that? And he'd go, no, no, we're not doing that one, we're doing this one. And we were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> go, yeah, yeah, I've just finished this. Let's do this one. And he'd play it twice to you, and you were still going, what the hell? Okay, and where's the chorus? I'm, so Mick and Trevor and I would be going, what does it go out on? Does it go out on choruses? Is there a middle eight? What's that bit in the middle? We'd be quickly kind of talking to each other, and then David would just look up to Ken Scott and go, "Is it rolling?" <laughs> be like, "Fuck," <laughs> you know. Yes. It was like on the edge, and we, you know, when we, so we'd do a take, and then we'd go, "Okay, let's go up and listen." And um, a lot of times, in the beginning, I would go, "Oh, it does do that." I thought it did that. I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Uh, shall we go and do another one? And he would go, no, 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 that's it. And we'd go, but that's the second time we've played it. And he'd go, yeah, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted. Which is extraordinary, go, yes. And, and, and we'd go, at, at first we'd think, oh, fucking hell, has he lost the plot? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Is, is he an idiot? What, does he not know that if we do it a few more times, it'll get tighter and it'll... But he was he was clever. He'd say, you know, let me put the twelve string on. He'd do that, and then he'd say, okay, I'll do a vocal, and then the whole thing would just come alive, you know. Yeah, it's um, extraordinary. They're like bigger, bigger than the parts you'd played. It was just took on a bigness, and I I realised like shit. He really wants he wants you in that creative place 
he wants that what do you what do you what do you really feel and what put the pressure on you t- so that you're trying to find the exact right thing to play and and once you've got that that's it and you realize i mean i've done it since and i know a lot of probably most bands that ever existed they they kill, can kill a song you know you do like eight takes and you're you're trying to get this perfect song recorded and and it and it it loses something and it loses that that creative you're all in create at that moment and you get that onto vinyl or tape and it has something extra there's a there's an extra thing in there yeah that you you don't get with because if you do six times through the song you can't help but think oh what did i play on the second one i did a really nice drum roll <laughs> but so you're you're already not creating in right now you you're still thinking about one you did before so the one you're doing now is losing something because you're not really there doing it yeah. and he and he was smart he wanted that he won't you know what i want that creative edgy thing you know what i mean and, and it, it was it was clever you know yes. it was clever well it's interesting because i know when um talking to bands who did john peel sessions they they only had an afternoon a day whatever to do it so they really didn't have much time and they had a very good producer at the time in the 80s it was mostly that guy from mott the hoop or dale griffith yeah i do believe who was yeah. just like brilliant and there was the equipment but there was that sort of intensity so often the john peel sessions were like oh they're great and then you'd heard the album and the, and the version on the album you thought yeah the album wasn't quite so good somehow i can't you can't put your finger on it but there was a, a the, the the quality of the John Peel sessions were often just that bit more exciting, a bit more kind yeah. of live, and that that was kind of interesting having that sort of intensity. And often people were still vaguely writing the odd verses as they were going into the studio to record yeah. the fourth yeah. song. So it, it is interesting. And also, I mean, that period that you were talking about, I mean, you know, you probably weren't aware of it because you were in in it, but to, to produce an album a year um, for those four years because you were on the Man Who Sold the World. Hunky Dory, you know, Ziggy, and then Lad Insane. I mean, you know, was there ever a moment you thought, God, this is absolutely amazing, or did it just feel like, well, this is just normal? Um, it, to, be, to be honest, it was so busy. Um, you didn't really think about, you know, you just got on with it. Yes. It was, you know, we finished Hunky Dory, and then a couple of weeks later we were in doing Ziggy. It was like, okay, that was a bit of a didn't quite know that was coming um but then you just got on with it and then you were you know either doing tv john peel shows whistle test on tour um yes it, top of the pops it, it was just crammed in i mean it, it was almost like cramming six years worth of what you're supposed to do into a a year <laughs> you know what I mean? it, it it felt like that but you 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 either like fell off or you got on with it do you know what i mean yes you, you just had to jump on the 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 train and um keep up with it basically yeah well it's, in, it's interesting because i've interviewed a lot of bands and mostly i didn't ha- i hadn't really realized it until i had sort of got to 
kind of going through, you know, literally hundreds. It's that that mostly they have this five-year narrative, you know, which is which is slightly the same but slightly different because they normally do a single. John Peel would pick it up. They do the album. The second album was kind of all right but a bit tricky. They, if anybody ever toured America, that was always the, what I found is that you know they came back and it was like things weren't going well and they were definitely going to sort of explode any minute. And then you know, generally about five years and then that was it. Whereas, you know, that, that classic lineup had a slightly similar time, but you you managed to get four albums and and an awful lot of a publicity. So it's kind of most most creative units seem to have an intensity that does last for us. There is a sort of finite time, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's it's mainly because of the pressure. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's a hell of a lot of pressure um, when you've done maybe 180 gigs with an odd day off. <laughs> yes, this is you, true. This is, and, and then, you know, especially for David, who was having to write the next lot of material at the same time as doing interviews and TV and radio and tour and travel uh now get the next album together that's on on a par with what you've just done you know that's a that's a lot of um that's a lot of pressure you know um Yes. And also the one thing that, that sort of came out of, of sort of speaking to so many people is that you have the creative process and then you have the dreaded business and the admin and royalties and management. And that's another thing that nobody, especially when you're that age, can sort of appreciate and have time to have a quick think and speak to somebody who can really advise. So obviously that's another sort of, <laughs> that's yeah. another side which most people kind of realise. Neglect. Yes. Yeah. They kind of realise. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. we, we were exactly the same. We, you know, we, we had certain verbal agreements um, that, that kind of one by one went out the window as it went along and got bigger and bigger, you know. Yeah. But you didn't, you didn't really know they'd gone out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And you're in, you're, you're in a bubble, really, especially the, the whole Bowie, um, what can you call it, like, Futuristic circus yes. act in a in a bubble really, um, you know. On one level, you were, you were going out in front of American, sometimes like almost redneck audiences that had never seen anything like we what we were doing, um, and by the end of the night, you'd won them over. Um, you had that, and then you. you I think because of the nature of what we were doing, it, it pulled every freak and weirdo out of each American city. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They, yes. they seemed to, uh, we were a magnet for that, put it like that. So you, you had to find your way through all that lot um, at the same time as be prepared for the next gig and pulling it off and doing a good job. Yeah. Um, um, so, so it was a it was a constant kind of creative period, really. You yes. know, for for everybody in the band and David as well. You know, I mean, you know, luckily he'd, he'd taken the time to kind of what can I say? Take us on an educational trip through his through his viewpoints more than anything of how he viewed things. You know, um, we 
we'd finish a rehearsal and he would take us, he'd say, oh, we're going to see a play tonight, you know. Um, we'd say, a play, you know. <laughs> we would be thinking, we're a fucking rock and roll band. Why do we want to go and see a play, you know? And um, <laughs> he would say, I, I'd say, what it, what's it called? And he'd say, I don't care what it's called. I said, why are we going to watch it then? And he said, because the lighting director is the best one in London at the moment, and I want you to just sit and see what difference the lights make and some ideas, get ideas from it, or how we can use that in the set. Because when we put the set together, we want it lit properly, not just whatever, you know. Yeah. And he went, oh, interesting. So you went, you went, you know, he took us to a ballet one night, and we were just... You know, we took crisps and popcorn and all sorts of stuff with us. And it wasn't the right place to eat popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we yeah. had to quietly put it down with everybody in the place going, shh, shh, you know, shushing us. Yes. But you were like, oh, fantastic. You know, the pastel, the lights changed to pastel. And we went, we can use that. We can use that in the show on this number and that, you know. Um, and the same on, on kind of, clothes, you know, talking with Freddie, the guy who designed a lot of the clothes. Yeah. Um, you, you kind of got, you got more interested in not the musical side, you know, but how to, how to put it across in a show, because he was always open to ideas. If you come up with a good idea, he would go, explain it, and you explained it, and he'd go, I like that, let's do that, you know. Um, um. So, you so, had to be sure it was a good idea, but but he you know he never he never shut you down for having ideas and, and add into the uh, add into the show or anything. Yes, because when you were talking about that tour in in that bit, I just realised when during that period, you when you came to Norwich, which was at the Theatre Royal, you played actually two shows on one evening, which must have left you yeah. quite exhausted so kind of having having days like that must you know because you see a band who gives everything um like at the weekend we went to see a band called the killers and you thought you couldn't imagine them yeah. then having half an hour or an hour and then coming back and doing all that again without some sort of you know stimulant or yeah. some sort of whatever but yeah so yes you did have a punishing tour schedule at that time didn't you yeah, we did. We did a lot of that. Did a lot of that in America as well. Yes, uh, you know, doing two shows a day for like a week. But again, you you know, you rise up to it. You go, okay, well, you can't save anything. You can't say, oh, I'll take it easy in the first show. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you gave everything you had, and then the second show, you had to find it. You had to do the same again. You know. Yes. Um, and then you got so that you could do that. Um, and then you could go to a party afterwards and stay up till six, get up at eight, go to the next gig and do it all again. You know, you you just, I guess there's a lot in when you're doing something you love to do and it's working and um, it, it does feed a lot of energy back to you, that whole concept. Yeah. So it is, it is a lot easier than it, it seems. I mean, physically at the end of a tour, you'd get back to the flat in Beckenham and I think, three of us just sat down in three chairs with our suitcases and we woke up two days later still <laughs> in the chairs. <laughs> what day is it? Yes. We got back Monday, it's like it's Wednesday, you know. It's amazing. Um, 
<laughs> so, so you were exhausted, you know. I would, the but, joy, but, that's but, the, I suppose it's the joys of youth. But then to, to go, you know, to fast forward, because obviously, as with a lot of things, you know, they never end terribly well. But then, you know, you know decades later, you, you sort of decide to sort of bring this the kind of supergroup band back. So was that quite a big decision to make? No, it was accidental, really. It's not something I thought about. Um, I I got a call from the financial director at the um, Institute of Contemporary Arts on the Mall. Um, and I think there was some kind of a Bowie film week on in London. And they decided they were going to have a they wanted to they wanted to interview me in front of 300 people an audience a live audience and um would i be up for it and it's not something i've done um i thought maybe, maybe that's a little bit eyebrow for me <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they talked me into it and in the end i thought well i'll give it a try i might i might enjoy it i might hate it but i might enjoy it so I did it, and it was it was really I really enjoyed myself. Some great questions from the audience, and um, it turned out they'd put a band together with um, Blondie's drummer. Yes. Um, what's his name? Clem. Um, Is it Clem? Clem Clem Burke, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Steve Norman from Spandau Ballet, and Bob Geldof, guitarist, and quite a few others. Um, to do the Latitude Festival in the name of the the arts thing, yes, um, under that banner, um, and it was the I think it was the apps. Um, God, what festival was it? Not did you say Latitude? Latitude Festival. It was that one. Yes, the Latitude, and they said, and I got. I've never met any of those guys, and we we really hit it off. Um, and they most of them had got into music through those early albums you know were big fans and they said look would you come along and just maybe do two songs at the festival and I thought oh yeah that'd be fun you know so went along and I, I was quite amazed at the audience response at the festival um, they were singing along to some of the Man of Sold the World things like pop songs, you know, which was quite intriguing. I never saw that because yeah. we never got to do that live, the Man of Sold the World, with David even. Um, it was an album that we kind of jumped and we didn't really do Unky Doe. We did odd tracks off it and odd tracks off the Man of Sold the World. But I never saw them as sing-along songs. I thought they were very dark and that intrigued me. And the response was really good and I, I think I, I did Ziggy in five years. And it was amazing, but it, I ended up stood at the side watching Clem Burke play all my drum parts for an hour and a half, thinking, oh, no, not that one. I want to do that one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then Blondie, Blondie had a, t a tour came in. There was so much response from that festival to do, for the band to do more gigs. But uh, Blondie were going to be touring, and so they came to me and said, look... Will you, be, will you be the drummer in it? There's so many offers to do gigs. And I thought, yeah, that'd be fun, you know. Um, as long as I don't have to audition, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of became the, the, the leader of my own band type thing yes. without even thinking about it. 
And then and then we just and then I thought, well, no, I don't just want to do odd things like that. And I remembered that we had never done the Man of Silver World live, um, really because of managerial uh, commitments and changeovers that David was going through at the time. And I thought, well, I've got, if I'm going to do it, I'm, I need Tony Visconti on bass because he was the producer and bass player on that album. Um, I'm not sure if he'd be into it. I know he's busy. And I rang up, and the minute I'd finished telling him the idea, he just said, yeah, I'm there wherever you wherever you play, and I'll be there. And I said, well. I said, I, I thought I'd have to spend about an hour talking to you about it. He said, no. He said, David and I have spoke about this over the years. Each time we do an album, we, we have this regret that we never went out and did, do the, did that album live. And I yeah. went, wow, I didn't know... He said it was kind of on my, it's always been on my bucket list to do, you know. So it was good. And we, and he said, I've just been working with a, a singer called Glenn Gregory. He said he would, he would really kill the vocals. He's amazing. Yeah. So I said, good, let's get together in London. And we, Tony flew over and he was supposed to have a day um, getting over the kind of jet lag because he'd been somewhere else before that. But he didn't. He, we were going to have a day in on our own without Tony. Anyway, he came the first day and he said, walked in with his bass and just went, what are we doing? And we just went, uh, the width of the circle. <laughs> and by the end of it, everybody just fell about laughing, not because it was bad, because it was so good. It just sounded so powerful and even right for now, you know. Yes. Uh, um, and then we went through the rest of the set and it was just, sound. it was just amazing to play that those songs again you know we'd all we Tony and I had both changed as musicians so there was a, a an even more um, I don't know what you'd say a streamlined edge on it from from, from what we'd both been through you know mm. and um, and it just really worked and then you know it's it's kind of been word of mouth really Yes. Um, one tour to the next since then did Japan and Canada and two tours of America and everywhere it's been the same just amazing playing and you forget I know it sounds stupid but you forget when you play we do two hours and ten minutes um, so you get through a lot of David Bowie songs yes and when, you and when you're playing them all one after the other it 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 kind of, it's like a rebirth. You you remember, wow, how good these songs are, how, how emotional they are, um, especially live, you know, um, which when you hear them on the radio, and I'm used to hearing them on the radio, they don't impinge on me as much as they used to do. But playing live, it's like, wow, that I don't know which I like best, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, it's interesting because obviously, I mean, had you been in touch with Tony Visconti that much since 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 those early days um during the low album I was I was doing sessions in France and uh I knew Tony was in with David and I, I actually rang Tony just to chat with Tony and uh so we had a good chat on the phone we said we must meet up in London whatever and then he phoned back 10 minutes later and said, oh, De I just told David I've been speaking with you. He says, why don't you come down to the studio? It's only 12 miles away. 
and hang out, you know. So I'd, I'd gone down and chatted with him. We went to dinner, and um, and it was good. It, it kind of put a lot of the um, unsaid things at the end of the Ziggy period. Um, we could put that to bed, and, and he said, look, you know, that that ride from relative obscurity to um, the very top I did with you guys, with the spiders, you know, it was, that was that was my rocket ride. And um, I'm never going to get that again. So I just want to say I really appreciate what you did, you know. Um, and he'd never really, not that we ever sat and thanked each, thanked each other at all, you know. Yeah. But it was, it was nice. It, it, and... Uh, we kind of went through all the ups and downs of it so that it was, I guess, what we call it, closure. <laughs> yes, I think, I think closure is the right word because it was a very touching book uh, piece which I read when Trevor Boulder, you know, realised that things, you know, you know, his illness was kind of bigger than he expected probably. And then, you know, David, yeah. David got in touch with him to say, you know, yeah. kind of say, and I could see, you know, it must have meant a lot to Trevor to have that kind of communication with David just to acknowledge, you know. Yes, you know, it did. It yeah. did. Cause and, there, were, there were a lot of things left unsaid all around. There were a lot of things said that shouldn't have been said, but there were, there were a lot of things that should have been said weren't said. Yes. So it, it did give that opportunity yeah. to... Um, to do that so that was it was good yes know. and i would imagine you know i know you'd hate this word but you know working with tony and doing the songs and the whole relationship with david there must be a certain and i hate to say it but that kind of healing process or do you you know because because obviously that was such an intense time and those songs you know you think at the time you know are these going to be played you know 40 you know i mean they're not just being played sort of decades later but they're, they're going to be played until the you know the planet gets blown up really aren't they and and you were yeah, part of yeah. that basically you know there's a bit like the Beatles the Stones Hendrix you know those songs are like well these are the good songs and there's other ones which will get dropped but these will never get dropped while you know, yeah, people can listen yeah. to music so obviously being able to sort of in the latter years of life be able to get on stage and play these classic songs and have people like Tony Visconti and these are young chaps who are sort of in their 50s <laughs> yeah <laughs> Must feel like oh, this is kind of this is better than I could have ever dreamt of. Yeah, it is like that. It is like that. Um, it's. Um, I guess it's you know the the, the nature of of how we played it um, as Ziggy and the Spiders was very much um, almost aloof from most of the business. You know, we 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 didn't mix very much. Yes. <laughs> we were our own entity, moving around the world, playing concerts and partying and all that. But apart from anything outside that, we didn't really mix that much. So to be able to do it um, now, with a you know where you do a meet and greet set, is is amazing. It's it it kind of fills in missing pieces i mean nowadays bands do do that they yes. meet fans and things like that we didn't really do that we were like bang gone you know that was that was um that was kind of part of the mystique really um now you see us now you don't you know um so it's nice to be able to meet people that 
where those albums have been a soundtrack to their lives, as you, you know. Well, absolutely, yes. It, it's just, uh, and what, and you you realise that, yeah, okay, we, I mean, so many, hundreds, hundreds have, have said, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, and I always wanted to dance, or I always wanted to be a choreographer, or I, was, I always wanted to write, or... And after seeing that show, I just went, I can do it. I can go for this. Yes. And they, you know, and you go, well, you know, each person, you, they leave you tingling, basically. Well, you know it, what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. There, 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 were, there were two guys, that, that, two brothers, that uh, it was somewhere like Cleveland, and they said, look, we just want to say, um, you know, we, we were drafted to Vietnam and we took the, all we took with us was the Ziggy album, you know. And um, we just want to say we would not be alive, we would not have come back if we hadn't had that album. That kept us sane. And you just go, go, gulp, big swallow, you know. <laughs> I'm glad it helped. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. But so many stories like that, you know. Absolutely. Um, somebody going to commit suicide, a lot were suicidal and and got through it you know because of just sitting and listening to the albums you know you think okay well it, so many effects are created that you're not aware of for 40 years do you yes. know what i mean um to, it just shows the power of you know good songs and and that it how worthwhile that the industry is really you yeah know? and did david ever give a kind of a blessing or did, did you ever get in touch with him when you know during those kind of because there was that period where he played a couple of dates for the reality tour then he had his heart problem and disappeared I mean was it the case that um that he he um yes <laughs> did he ever sort of did you ever have to or not have to but did you ever sort of have any communication with him during that period no there was um I mean, when I'd when I'd seen him in France, he said, "Look, if you ever want to get hold of me for anything, it might take you a week to get through all the lines, um, especially if I'm in a project or doing an album. But persevere, and I'll get back to you." And I never had a, anything really that that came up that was that urgent to persist that much. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then then it came down the line. Must have been maybe 80, 1980, where I was asked, you know, would David wants to put the spiders back together again? Um, are you into it? And I said, I'm definitely be interested in talking about it. Um, and they got hold of Trevor and got hold of Mick. And Mick said, no, I'm in the middle of production and I'm too busy and I don't want to go backwards. Um, which was probably a, a stupid thing, really, <laughs> at the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It 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 would have been interesting to see what, because I think I think it took David quite a few. Um, I think when he did Tin Machine, that was an attempt to create a little bit of what we had in the Spiders with him, yes. where it's a band thing. Um, I think he was. I think he always did. For me, he always did better with a a good personal band behind him that that fully understood what he was doing, and he could just 
ride on, I guess, the wave of music that we were able to create behind him. Um, you know, we we were pretty good at taking his songs and making them work as rock songs, and uh, and he was able to. Um, ride on that I, and I don't think he had it when it was just musicians good musicians yes. but when it's not a unit um, that's fully got that chemistry shall I say <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a different person and I think he was trying to get a little bit of that back but it didn't work because you can't stick David Bowie then into a into a band and hope that it's going to work, you know. Yeah. Um, and then obviously he went. Well, so to... I, I thought it was a good idea to try and get it back together again. Unfortunately, it didn't work, you know. Yes, and then the decades passed by. Yeah. Which yeah. was kind of. But he was so. It was so. He was so, um, was so. Once he saw what he could do. You know, probably after Man of Silver World, when we saw what a, like a three-piece band could do with him out front with the 12-string. Um, and, and I think he just went, I don't have to be like anybody else. When he came back from America, it was a, it was a different, um, it was a different game. And Hunky Dory for me was always a, this is a songwriter album, you know. Yes. I'll show you, you give me an elastic band and I'll write you a hit song on it, you know. He, he could do it with anything. Um, and I always thought he could. I always thought he was able to write hits whenever he felt like it. He just didn't always feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think to him the message of that particular project or album was always senior to having a hit it's like no i want to say this yes. i don't want to i don't want to and I, I don't see a hit fit in that or i you know i don't feel like writing a hit um but i, I always thought he could do it whenever he felt like it well it's interesting because because obviously you know that you know the albums kept coming and you know during the different decades and sort of one followed his career and it wasn't always that easy you know i mean people think being a david bowie fan was easy it's like some albums kind of like you had to sort of as a fan listen but at the same time think oh blimey this is a bit tricky and then you yeah. you, you had Trent yeah. in machine you know people forget you know a lot of the 80s and 90s weren't good and it was actually kind of towards the end the reality or heathen and then reality and i think he did have a bit of a band that he could trust a bit more that yeah that sort of yeah. and he got, went back to crafting just really good songs and and he still could because actually a lot of artists you know you, you know they bring out the new album and and you just think yeah they're not really that memorable but those tracks yeah. and those albums are like actually they're still good you know i'm going to still listen to these years decades later whereas a lot of artists you know you think oh my god they made several albums after their classic years and boy, you wouldn't want to listen to them, you know, unless you were being paid, you know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so yeah. he did have that thing that could still write that classic song. Yeah, you could, you could never, no matter what genre or, or what an album turned out like, you could never discount the idea that there might be one track on there that just blew you away. Yeah. 
Yes. Do, do you know what I mean? That, that you really didn't have to think about. You just thought, I love that. Do you know what I mean? If that's the only track he'd done, I still love that. You know, mm. that that's the one. He's, he always managed to do that. Um, yes. He was probably more prolific, <laughs> if that's the right word, in the, in the early albums. You know, it, it got to be because we were all living in the same house, you'd hear him writing, you know. You'd hear him piano in the bedroom and a 12-string in the lounge. So he was in one place or the other, and he'd just go, finish one, you know, or come, what do you think to this? And You know, you at first you half expected to have to go in and pretend that you liked one, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it wasn't very good. Yes. But, you know, you soon, you soon realize that they're all good. He's, everything he's writing, whether he pulls the little cheap piano out and writes one, pretty things or whatever, um, they're all really flipping good songs, you know. Um, it, but it was amazing to sort of look at, you know, just that one decade. I mean, you could look at all of them, but, you know, that was like, it worked out almost as like an album a year. This is the 70s, an album a year, you know, obviously touring, relocating in several places, producing Iggy Pop and that Lou Reed album. Yeah. You know, and you're thinking... Busy boy, you know that is quite <laughs> like not yeah. many other people, and the musical style having changed quite radically at times as well. And thinking, yep, that's uh, that's somebody who definitely hasn't got um, so you know, it's just first gear, isn't it? Basically, I mean, you know, yeah, he didn't have any um, artistic blocks, writer's <laughs> blocks, or creative no. blocks on him. You and know? That, I mean, he, he he didn't. I think when we first got together with him, there was there was a. You know, you can look at an artist and go, there's something there, you know? You you get an instinct for, um, phew, there's more to this man than meets the eye. Um, but he wasn't, he didn't have that confidence. He didn't have that, um, I'm going to do this and this will work, and I think this. And I think that was due to just trying at so many different, areas and and different genres to make it without saying what does david what does david jones want to do mm. what do you want to write about you know how do you want to play the game and once he got that once he got i'm going to do what i want to do and if they understand that song great if they don't tough tough look you know he was no longer trying to be somebody else or a bit of somebody else or what he thought the market wanted or it was it was no longer that game it was like it's got a rock and it's and it's this is the this is the this is what i'm writing you know like it or not yeah. you know when we finished life on mars you know we were so Ken Scott had said, come uh, come in and listen. So the four of us went into the mixing suite and just listened to it back. And, it, and we knew it was good. You know, Rick Wayman on piano and all the strings and that. Um, but it, when you've... And it's in its raw state of recording. It's, it's good, but it doesn't have the finesse of when it's mixed. And I looked along the three of them and that our mouths were all open, basically. <laughs> you know? And I remember saying... Is that us? <laughs> it was just, just amazing to kind of almost forget that we just we played that, yeah, and to be on the receiving end of it, 
And um, and then the next minute you think, yeah, but wow, that is so different to what's out there. So different to anything that's been done. Um, yes. So you never, you, you always never knew whether the next thing was going to go. It was always a bit edgy, It was a, which was good, you know. But um, you didn't know whether anybody would, we loved it and we were really proud of life on Mars. And, but it took a bit for the public to catch up with it. I think it got released and then didn't do anything. And then it was only, you know, as later as Ziggy went and blah, blah, blah. And then it, then it got a lot of attention. Then people realized it was good. Yes. Know? And obviously there's moments that kind of things get un unearthed and there was that little top of the well little that sort of top of the pops um was it the gene genie that suddenly appeared after decades of being in someone's yeah. cupboard and you must have yeah we'd never seen that we were on our way to a gig at glasgow yes after we did top of the pops so we never saw it um go out live um, and obviously i hadn't seen it since since that Oh, de- decades and de- when you saw it did you i mean you know like us the fans we were like wow but we didn't play on it but you know it was like you on drums and david with his fantastic kind of you know style as well and you know the earrings and you thought wow that's amazing yeah. you know that must have been yeah. quite a nice moment it was it was it was a really nice moment because it was because it was live and nobody did it things live in that at that particular time Yes. When we got asked to do Top of the Pops, David just went, we'll only do it if we can play live. And that was mainly because we'd been gigging so much that nearly all the songs played live sounded to us better than any albums we'd done. They just had something else about it. And he said, we do it live or not at all. So Top of the Pops said, yeah, okay, you can do it live, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was exciting because it was top of, you know, top of the pops was always that that show that any budding rock star wanted to do. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? From the first time you saw it, that was like that was a a milestone to get to top of the pops. So to do that and then do it live um, was amazing. Yes. And what would you what would you say to your eighteen year old self starting out in music? Yes. Um, what, what advice would you give a, an 18 year old if you know you met your younger self just kind of backstage or in the studio and thinking oh I could give them a quick word just to sort of yes because I have... think two things probably one let just let your imagination go wherever it goes and and follow it you know dream dream big don't keep your dreams small and um On an administration side, um, get it in writing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, look after the business side, but still dream big. Yes, have an afternoon. Um, But, you know, that's really the, that's the difference between the ones that really get huge. They think that big. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like, no, I don't just want to be in a band that big or that big or doing that just think of whatever whatever's right for you yes. but think big think big always well it's interesting i think people you know i've sort of noticed i mean there's been lots and well, thousands of really good bands but you know they have generally 
been vaguely quite quite small or and have only lasted five years and then you get people like sting or you too and you realize there's that kind of extra something and it is probably what the latter part of that answer that you gave they looked after the yeah. ad, they looked after the admin to make sure that you yeah. know we're going to get paid yeah. for this and we'll and and that will that will bring us a certain amount of comfort and happiness having money in the bank which i think a lot of bands just go i'm really fed up after five years you know we've worked you know it's been fun but i'm still broke so actually i'm going to give this up and get a job so yeah, I think yeah. Um, yeah. it's interesting, that that sort of side of things. And also what was quite interesting, I just noticed that Nick Mason from Pink Floyd is also bringing out a musical kind of adventure as well with the, the music of Pink Floyd with Gary Kemp as well. So it's quite interesting. That... Yeah, I, I spoke to Gary, actually. Yes. Um, a couple of weeks ago, he invited me to the one of the London shows. That'll be interesting, actually. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because you know you, you're sort of doing your thing, and then I see Jeff uh, Jeff Beck still sort of comes out, and obviously the Stones. So, so there is kind yeah. of this this brilliant longevity that people are going to just kind of rock for <laughs> forever, and obviously Tony Visconti, who's who's still sort of doing so many things. So it's um it's yeah, amazing yeah. That, that everybody has got that kind of passion to say, actually, we don't care anymore what people think. We're just going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, and that you know, really, that's how you start out when you start out as a teenager. You you're not, you know, you're not you're getting enough to buy a a bag of chips to, to share between the band yes. and enough petrol to get back home. But it it's the uh, do you know what I mean? It's the it's the create of doing a gig and getting audiences off that whole thing um, is why you're doing it. You know? Yes, and obviously not. You know, it's like the Beatles have said. You know, we only thought we'd last three years or whatever. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, perceptions and, and realities change so much. Um, I'm just following Keith Richards basically. As long as he's getting up there, I'm going to follow him. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yes, well, I think uh, I think Keith and Iggy Pop and Mick and everybody have kind of kept that going. So you, yeah, um, yeah, it, it's no. And it's you know, it's the whole spirit of it. It's like. You know, when I when we put the holy holy thing together, I said, you know, there's a there's 500 tribute bands out there worldwide doing Bowie songs. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And good musicians doing it, but you know, that isn't really what the Bowie thing was. It was like, yeah, taking for granted that you're a good musician and you can play, but it's can you actually capture the the spirit of those songs, how they, you know, what what it was about those songs. Can you create that live, or are you just going through the notes? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, so we put that in as a band. That it that is the senior thing. It's 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 just that atmosphere that that particular song can create. And if you can't put that into an audience, because um, the Bowie fans are, are very fickle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They don't. They won't take shit. Do you yes. know what I mean? That's what I've found out, which is a good thing, you know. Um, I guess there are some that will listen to anything that's vaguely resembling a Bowie song, yes. you know. That you know, but the majority have have got real taste. Do you know what I mean? That's what I've found. Yes. So you you have to keep it true to the albums and you have to play it with that that you mean it you know we always we always played it with david like we meant it and with that spirit 
that was always the important thing that you were communicating, you know. Yes. The songs were things, the songs were tools to create that that uh, atmosphere in an audience, you know. Um, so we've kept that in and it, it's worked. It works now, it worked then and it will work for another whatever many years, you know. Absolutely. And what, what particular song that you, you know, I mean, it's probably impossible to answer, but is there one particular song that you think, God, I love playing this, you know, this is the one that I just look forward to, you know, I mean, I'm sure they're all fantastic, but is, yeah, there, is there one um, particular one that you just really enjoy the groove? There's, there's two that, no, three. <laughs> no, it's getting bigger. No, um, I love, I love doing five years just for the, the difference, the, the atmosphere that that particular song creates. And I like Moon Age Daydream. Um, it's so uni- it's like you're playing in the middle of the universe when you're playing that song. Yeah, it just feel it just feels like that, like you're in charge of the whole universe rhythmically. <laughs> <laughs> Might sound a little pretentious, but that's how it feels to me, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Ziggy, I just love the uh, the whole arrangement of Ziggy. It it seems to sum up. Um, that whole concept of those years, you know, um, and you can, you know, I can still play it probably with more feel than I ever did, you know, yeah. but it's, uh, it's a real joy to play it, you know. And were, and were you surprised? Cause obviously David was kind of one of the first to have this, the exhibition David Bowie is, did you get along to have a, a look at that? Cause obviously, do you, do you know what? I have to admit, I didn't, I got, I got five invites at different times, and every time I was in the studio or on tour or something I couldn't get out of. So I never actually got to see the exhibition, which is bad, really. But there you go. Yes. Well, it will. I'm sure it will keep touring and touring. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I know. Yes. I would like to catch it, actually. Yeah. Well, I get the impression that his... Uh, wife and daughter probably um, incredibly proud and obviously want to keep the legacy going so I'm sure that um, yeah yeah I mean they must yeah. feel you know though it's horrendous I'm sure they they feel quite amazed that you know of what you know what he represented to so many people really so um yes yeah I mean you know one thing that that really threw me was at some gigs you you you, you get like I don't know 30 16 year olds. 17 year olds you know and they've got all those albums under their arms and you got you look and you and you expect them to say could you sign this for me mum <laughs> <laughs> and they go no no it's for me can you put it to john you know excellent and you, and you go are these your albums or whatever and they, these are my favorite albums of all time and you go wow you know um that that's just, that's amazing. That still blows me away when I hear that. You know. Yes. Um, and that they stood. At, we had a four, no, twelve-year-old at a gig, sang every flipping word of the set. You know, just we were all watching her, and she just was singing word perfect. You know, and you think, wow, that's that's really amazing that that young kids are, are getting it because yes. you kind of lose hope a bit that they've gone into some 
manufactured music type mode and they only listen to it on iPhones and they don't know what good music you know you go you can go down that road really easy yes. but when you see when you see kids they're, they're their favorite albums you go like wow that's it's still creating that same effect you know well interesting I suppose I mean it might be a bit strange for you because you were there but that Ziggy Stardust film where they sort of you know zoom into a, a member of the audience singing and she sort of sings every word and is kind of going through them the actions as well you know physically you know yeah. dancing to it and it yeah. is kind of like you know they i think that's moon age daydream that she's singing to because the lyrics are so kind of kind of both abstract yeah. surreal and futuristic but sort of personal it's kind of odd how you, you know you can have so many things in your a bit. yes so yes you can just imagine you know like you know, those lyrics are kind of unusual, but they're kind of like beautiful at the same time, you know, so it's interesting. Are you still yeah. there? Yeah. Yes. So look. Yeah, it, it just chopped out a little bit. But... Oh, okay then. Sorry about that. But I think, anyway, look, Woody, I think I've got quite a bit there now, but thank you ever so much. Well, for that's great. Me... Thank you ever so much for giving me your time. And, um, you know. Yeah, my pleasure, David. Yes. And again, you know, fantastic. I love the book. I really love the book. So. It was Thank great you. to um, yeah read that, and it must have been an amazing process. Did when you just briefly when you sat down to write it, did you? I mean, did you think right this is it, or do you think well I'll have a go and see how it feels? Um, well, firstly, I was I was not going to do it. I probably got asked about five times by different publishers, and I thought, well, David's going to cover this period in a book. He's going to do this. Uh, so I declined that many times. Then, then I heard on the great van he was never going to do that. And I thought, well, somebody needs to put down what it was actually like and that, that whole ride through that period. Um, and then it was, it was, uh, it was just a matter of actually going back there. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, and, kind of really reliving it to get what it was like. Um, and that was, and I thought that would be, you know, it was, there was a few, uh, bittersweet moments, you know, um, but it, but it was actually, I enjoyed it. It was, it was good to, Oh, you've gone, you've gone. Are you still there? Woody? For somebody who, who liked the music already. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It wasn't to uh, convert anybody or anything. It was just, well, this is what it was like on our side, you know. Yeah. I wanted that story um, out there, you know. Um, and it was it was good. It was good to do. It took a, um, a lot of pacing and a lot of swearing, <laughs> you know, to get it, to get it how I felt right about it. I didn't want to, put some anything out there that I would want to um, hide away from or seen in public for a bit now <laughs> you know what I mean yes. it was like no I want to I want to be responsible for how it was and and communicate that you know yeah excellent well look actually I think um this this line is slightly breaking up there but look what yeah. look thank you ever so much I, I think we'll leave it there that was me in conversation with with Woody Woodmansey from the Spiders from Mars. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. 
Um, thank you for listening. If you still are, I mean, literally, I mean, um, that would be so unlikely. But if you are and you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. And also, um, all these shows have been archived and you can find those on Podbean, Spotify, um, iTunes and Mixcloud. Indeed, you can. Anyway, have a great week.